At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our series, Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World, we're coming face-to-face with the division that seems to define the culture of our nation, our communities, and even our churches. Join us as we turn to 1 Corinthians to discover the unifying power of a people who follow Christ. A little over a decade ago, Tommy Walker, who was a graphic designer from Detroit, traveled on a business trip to the state of California. And while he was in California, Walker had a kind of pivotal moment in his life. He was in a hotel room, and uh, he happened to decide to turn on the news that evening. And it was right around the time all the issues were happening with the then mayor of Detroit, Kwame Kilpatrick, and it had made national headlines. And As Walker sat in his hotel room watching this, he felt a growing tension within his heart. He was frustrated by the way that his city was getting portrayed nationally, not only for the scandal, but just kind of the rep that Detroit had kind of had over the years. But he had been part of kind of a growing renaissance that he had seen happening within the city. And Walker notes uh, that 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 really became something that he continued to hold on for a while in this tension of what was being portrayed about Detroit and what he was seeing. A couple years would go by and uh, uh, Walker had moved into the shirt production business and he actually was uh, living in a flat downtown and had a screen printing shirt uh, or press with him one night in his apartment and he had suddenly out of just this tension and this feeling and this love for his city, he had the idea to to print a new shirt. He decided it would be a simple black design with white letter, block letters that simply said Detroit versus everybody. Maybe you've seen that shirt. Maybe you've worn that shirt. Pretty soon it actually became a pretty big hit around the city. Lots of people started to don that gear. It seemed to connect with the kind of underdog mentality of the city, the kind of down but not out. We can overcome. We can come back. And it became a phenomenon. And Walker began to see lots of success. A decade later, Detroit versus everybody, the brand has actually exploded. And it seems like everyone now has a versus everybody shirt. Most cities or sports franchises have some version of what Walker had developed, much to the chagrin of many native Detroiters. I remember when I lived in Northeast Ohio a few years ago when they started to come out with shirts that said Cleveland against the world, right? It was kind of the same mentality. But we we are here to acknowledge Detroit originated it, okay? So I'll just, just set you at ease. Now, not to rain on the parade, but I think the explosion of that kind of brand, the kind of versus every brand, actually highlights something interesting about the human experience. It seems to me when you really dig underneath, and although there's fun, and I'm not trying to rain on the fun, but it seems like we as human beings are often drawn to a kind of an us versus them mindset. We like, we rally around the kind of ideas that says, my people, my tribe, my city, my team, versus everybody else. You're either with me or you're against me. And we're quick to identify who is who. Who's part of my tribe and who's not. The us versus them mentality runs deep within humanity. Travel anywhere in the world and you find it. People groups against people groups. Ethnicities against ethnicities, countries against countries, religion against religion, or even against non-religion. Us versus them. Seems to be something that we're just drawn to 
as humans. Sometimes in fun ways, sometimes in way less than fun ways. But it's a mentality that we seem to perpetuate continually across our history. From the moment humanity rebelled against God in the world, there's been an us versus them mentality. Adam versus Eve. Male versus female. People versus people. We live in a world marked by division. So how does a church that exists in an us versus them world actually begin to find and experience unity? Jesus prayed that his church would be one as he and the Father are one. But if we recognize we're drawn in our human experience toward an us versus them mentality, how do we actually begin to discover and live out that call and that vision? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul was dealing with when he wrote to the church in Corinth in his first letter. There he found a church marked by division, by an us versus them mentality. And Paul writes to encourage them to see that despite their differences and the challenges of the world and the division that they were experiencing, that God is not, or that the church is not an us versus them people. But actually, God's people are not divided. And this, we jump into our text today. This is what Paul wants to help us to see. We've already begun in this series from the very beginning, noting the high call that Paul reminds the Corinthian church and any church that we have. He begins his letter by reminding them that we are called to holiness and we are called to unity together, that these things are meant to mark the very essence of Jesus's people and his church. Then Paul goes on to remind us that even now that call is hall that are tall that God has given us the resources necessary to actually follow and live that out so that we can become a unified people. But now, in kind of the first major paragraph of his letter, Paul begins to lean in the work of what it looks like to actually be a church united in an us versus them world and how we can actually do it. Look with me at verse 10 again. Paul leans in, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul moves into the main body of his letter, he begins with a strong call towards the Corinthian church. That ideal of appeal is the ideal of an urging or a passionate experience, or, or passionate encouragement, sorry. Paul suddenly goes right after him. He's been kind of pleasant up to this point. He remains pleasant, but you can start to hear the passion. I appeal to you. Hear my call, church. Paul roots his appeal and his urging in two key things. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Paul, from the get-go, even as he encourages them, roots his encouragement in the reminder that they are spiritual family. That this is what marks the essence of who they are together. Oftentimes when we read those phrases like brothers and sisters, we, we kind of feel like those are nice pleasantries, throwaway words. But in Paul's days, to mark a community of people as brothers and sisters was a huge deal. There was no stronger cultural or communal bond in Paul's day than the one of family. Family was what you were most loyal to. Even in Paul's day, you were more loyal to your family, even to your brothers and sisters, than you were your own spouse. 
Now that feels weird in our day, right? We, we don't live that way in our day. It's like me and my spouse versus everybody else. That's our mentality. But in Paul's day, that wasn't the case. Family was everything. Family was your identifying. Family is what you rooted in. That was your strongest bond. So for Paul to then come along and say, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, marking the church now as the center of the bond, highlights the key and core aspects of who they are meant to be, a spiritual family together. Not only that, he not only appeals to that reality, he then appeals to them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul goes in his call right from the get-go to the top. Right, I mean, if you want to feel the weight of a call, right there it is. I appeal to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just try that with someone sometime. All right, I appeal to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wash the dishes. You feel the weight. We laugh because we feel the weight of it. I mean, Paul's trying to bring that urgency from the get-go. He's urgent. He's passionate. What is he passionate about? What does he desire for this church? Well, he says it, that you all agree. That all of them, every single one, be in agreement. That phrase that Paul uses could actually be translated that you all say the same thing. That there's a unity in what you say, what you agree to. Why does Paul have such a heart for that? Well, he goes on to clarify that there be no divisions among you. That word that we translate division, in the Greek it's the word schismata. It's the root word of where we get our word schism. But schism isn't the right idea. It's, a, it's not what really what it, what it conveys. The original word means the idea of tearing or ripping. A better translate might be to split or to tear apart. The words used in times that to talk about like tearing a fishing net or tearing a piece of clothing. Paul's heart is not only that they agree, but that they wouldn't have a tearing or a ripping or a pulling apart that is existing within their community. But this is exactly what was happening in Corinth, and we're going to see in a minute why. But Paul's heart is to say, don't, don't be like that. Don't, don't be the sort of people that are pulling apart, that are tearing. See, this was a church that was together, but was beginning to split. And then he qualifies it one final time by saying, but that you may be united. That word united is the opposite of division. It's the idea of fitting or knitting together. That actually you would be working together and knit together, and Paul says, in the same mind and judgment. Now, when Paul says that, he's not talking about uniformity. It's easy to say, like, well, it's Paul's expectation that everyone in the church would have the exact same thoughts, right? They'd just be the same people. No. What he's getting at, though, is that there's an agreement on the central realities of what it means to be followers of Jesus. He would go on to say later in the letter that you would have the mind of Christ. That's kind of the idea he's beginning to plant here that this church would be united in Christ in such a way that they would be united in their thinking and in their judgment, the way in which they seek to both know and live out the reality of Jesus. Paul's encouragement is don't take sides, be on the same team. From the very get-go, his reminder is the church of Jesus Christ is not an us versus them sort of people. We're a united people. God's people are not meant to be divided. We're not to be split. We're not to be torn but we're to be united together. But how does that actually happen? How, how does a people like the church in Corinth 
actually live united when they started to buy in to the kind of us versus them mentality that begins to tear at the very fabric of who they are. Well, that's what Paul wants to go on to encourage them in. And it's important for us because it helps us understand how we, together as a church, can protect our own unity to continue to remind ourselves of how we stay united in a world that wants to pull us into an us versus them mentality. And Paul really gives two key things in this passage for how we can pursue unity together. The first one he gives right away in verses 11 and 12. Look what he says. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So Paul gets a report back that there's some issues in the Corinthian church. We're not entirely sure who Chloe is, but what we can infer from the text is it's likely that Chloe was an influential businesswoman who had agents and emissaries that worked underneath her that would travel from city to city. And what it seems likely is that she's in the same city as Paul, but had sent some people on business to Corinth, to this church, and those people visited the church. And what they found there was that the Corinthian church was a mess. They were splitting all over the place, all of, all over, all, over all sorts of things. And they come back to Paul, who's likely in Ephesus at the time, to come back to say, hey, hey you got to do something about this. Like, there's a real mess that's going on. Paul highlights that, that they've said that there's quarreling. That word quarreling carries the idea of tension or strife. Have you ever been in a, in a room with people who are having a disagreement and it just felt terrible? Like, like you just wanted to get out of there. You know, you could like cut the tension with a knife. Right? We've, all, we've all been in those places. I, I kind of imagine that's how it had to feel in the Corinthian church. Like I imagine Chloe's people like come to Corinth and they're like, oh sweet, let's visit our brothers and sisters. Let's find the church. They, they come into this house. And I just have to imagine, I mean, when you read this letter, just how messed up in that church, they were like, oh no, somebody's got to do something about this. Like I, I can't stay here, right? And, and at some point they get back to Paul, they're like, you got to deal with this church. Like it, it's, it's become an issue. It's become a problem. What's the center point of the tension? What's causing them to tear and fight? Well, Paul goes on to explain it. He says, what I mean, verse 12, is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Paul explains the essence of their quarreling. And what he says is that the locus, the problem of their division is that this church has begun to side with various church leaders in a way to try to bolster their power and influence within the church. Paul almost uses this language like, like their political campaign slogans that the church has bought into. That as they come, they're fighting. They've, they've begun to identify with certain leaders and to pit those leaders against each other in order to gain influence and power in the church. And because of that, it's causing them to split or to tear at their unity. The church had begun to buy into personality allegiance over spiritual unity and allegiance. They pick their favorite pastor, their favorite church leader, and they use that as a way to pit themselves against the others. Now, the three leaders that Paul identifies here were highly influential in the church in Corinth. Paul planted the church in Corinth. He came to Corinth, performed ministry over a year and a half, won people to Christ, planted, built the church, and then left. 
He was hugely influential. His teachings helped shape the very fabric of who their community was. And so you could see people say like, oh, Paul, he's awesome. We love Paul. We're all about him. But then after Paul, the notes, letters comes, another church leader came into Corinth, Apollos. And Apollos was quite the leader. What Acts recounts to us about Apollos is that he's described as an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, which means he was knowledgeable and fervent in spirit. Paul, or Apollos was a charismatic leader and speaker. He was likely trained Greek in, in high rhetoric and philosophy. He knew how to communicate persuasively and eloquently. He comes to Corinth after Paul and leads the church for a while. And people, remember, the Corinthian church loved, loved rhetoric and philosophy. They were marks of Greek culture and they prized those. And so people started to say, oh, this guy, Apollos, he's the guy you need to listen to. Forget that Paul guy. This is the guy I'm with. The third person that's mentioned is Cephas, which is another name, a Greek name for Peter, who's the foundational apostle from the church in Jerusalem, one of Jesus' original disciples. And Peter was hugely instrumental in the Jerusalem church and likely massively influential on Jewish Christians. And so people in the church begin to go like, no, it's not, it's not about those guys. It's not the Greek thing. We got to go back to our Jewish roots. Peter's the guy I side with. He's the guy we need to follow. And what happened in the church is they began to use these leaders as a way in which they sought influence and to split and divide from one another. You see, in an us versus them culture, what we do is we find people to idolize, to bolster up as the forefront of our values, what we want, what we desire for a community. We make them first and we try to uplift them because we think if they gain power and influence and I'm associated with them, then I'll increase in power and influence. And that's what had happened in the church in Corinth. And they began to prioritize their leaders over their spiritual unity in Christ together. And Paul essentially comes in to say, hey, you've got to acknowledge that this is what's tearing at the fabric of who you are. You see, humanity is always prone towards elevating significant human beings in our lives and communities to take the place of God. We were originally designed as human beings, created by God to take our cues from him. We're his image bearers, right? Which means we're meant to, to reign under the rule of God. That's where we receive our identity, our purpose, our calling, we explored this multiple times this summer throughout the book of Genesis. But in humanity's rebellion, in turning from God as creator towards created things, in order to find that identity and purpose, to find that kind of bolstering, what we end up doing is actually elevating other human beings in that place. And we think, if I side with them, then I can find my identity and purpose and community and unity that I'm looking for. That's what humanity does, and it, even those within the church can be prone to that. Instead of taking their cues from Christ, we elevate people, and we make them the forefront. And because of that, it leads us to divide from one another. And this is a deep-rooted reality that's in our hearts, that if we don't acknowledge and recognize is what can often cause division within the church. You are prone in your fallenness 
to follow, to follow and prioritize people's personalities over the person of Christ. I remember the first time I, I started to click for me just how bent we are towards this. In 1956, two um, professors, Wool and Horton, I couldn't remember his name, developed a theory known as parasocial interaction or relationship. I studied it in my undergrad. I was a communication studies major. And um, the theory goes like this. They recognized, this was early on, remember, 1956. They began to recognize that people's consumption of mass media on television was causing them to start to develop social relationships or perceived social relationships with the people that they were following. And they began to do a research study. And what they found is people that regularly consumed people on television would start to develop relationships to the point where they felt like they had an actual friendship or an actual relationship with the personality that they were engaging. And that they would literally think, oh, yeah, this person knows me and I know them. Like, we're in a relationship together, psychologically. Now, that's in 1956. Media's only grown. We have only more pervasive personality. I remember the first time this clicked for me. I was having a uh, discussion with a family member while I was in college studying this um, on politics, Right? Always fun discussions to have with family. And so we were having, having this fun discussion, and I, I'm, I might be slightly prone towards debate and discussion. It might just be part of my personality and, and how I am. But, but I was having this discussion with this family member, and we were talking about some hot topic. And they started to recount some, um, some talking points from a, a pretty pervasive political persona at the time. And I started to challenge them on the details of that, those facts, and we were having this discussion. And I'll never forget... She looked at me in the midst of the discussion, and she goes, well, that can't be true, because he would never lie to me. I was like, he would never lie to you? He's not your friend. Like, he's a guy on TV that's trying to make money. Like, he, he but, she, but it literally had, in this debate, it was like, I realized at some point, like, she had developed in her mind such a relationship with this person that we couldn't even have a discussion because it was like, I trust him, and I don't trust anything you're saying. I was like, okay. And it, it dawned on, like, we are prone in our hearts towards personality. That, that's not just this person. I am prone in my heart to elevate personality at times in a way that actually causes me to separate or pull away from people in my actual life. That's what happens in our fallenness. And that's what happened in this church. They had so wrapped themselves up in the personalities of these people for their own influence, their own identity, their own power, that they were literally separating themselves from brothers and sisters in the faith when those guys weren't even there anymore. And so Paul writes to say, you got to acknowledge that wherever personality allegiance rises above spiritual unity, it will lead to division. It will lead to the tearing of the very fabric of your unity with the community and the community that's a part of. I've seen this happen, sadly, over decades of ministry. And the path is always the same. And I share it just to warn you and your own heart to be careful of it. I've encountered people who are introduced to someone's teachings 
a spiritual leader, someone of influence, a philosophy, an idea. Often those teachings aren't entirely all bad. There's good things, right? We want to learn and be a people that learn. But these people, usually they connect with that leader on some level. And suddenly they're drawn to this person and this personality. And they begin to consume their teaching as their primary voice in their life. That becomes the one they listen to. That's the one they go back to every day, regularly, considering and consuming that voice time and time again. What happens then is they begin to turn and look at their community and judge their community based on their allegiance to this personality. Well, we should be more like this. You should teach more like this. Why aren't we like so and so? And suddenly the community gets judged by the person's allegiance to the personality. Eventually what happens is they begin to distance and separate themselves from the community or they seek to wield influence and a power in a a way to shift the community to follow their values and their personality. This church should be more like this church. This community should follow this sort of teaching more. And eventually what happens is two things. Either they separate from the community or they begin to cause rifts and tears within the community. If you go back to almost every church split and division, I guarantee that underneath what you will find is an allegiance to personality 90% of the time over actual issues that are deeply true. Paul will deal with those in other letters. But what Paul wants to recognize is be careful. We are prone to follow personality over the person of Christ. And if we're not humble enough to see our tendency towards us versus them, if we can't acknowledge it, then we won't begin to mend it. And so Paul comes right out at the beginning of the letter to say, here's your problem. You've bought into this mentality. You've started to buy into that us versus them issue. And because of that, it's causing division. So what's the response, right? So he acknowledges it, and we need to acknowledge it and have the humility to recognize our own tendency, but how do we actually combat it? What do we do in response to move then towards unity? Well, that's what Paul essentially gets at in verse 13. Look what he says. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's response is, acknowledge the thing. That's the starting point. Acknowledge the division and what's been torn. But then the remedy is turn to Christ. Turn to the one and only Christ. He even brings it up. I I think he brings it up almost sarcastically at the end. They're like, I'm Paulus, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul. He's like, some of you, I'm of Jesus. There's people that use that card in order to divide, not unify. I've got the truth. I'm on Jesus' team, and you're not. And Paul comes along to say, is is Jesus divided? Is that that how he works? Is, Is that how this is supposed to go? No, and what he wants to do is draw us back to the truth that Jesus actually is what moves us towards unity. So his call is, turn to Christ. 
And really what it looks like, I think he gives us kind of three keys to what it looks like to turn Christ in that, in, to turn to Christ to find unity in the midst of an us versus them culture. First is recognize that the community is meant to be marked by the reality of Jesus, right? Recognize him. He's the head. He's the one that sets the tone for the community. So when he says, is Christ divided? Paul's whole point is, if you're following Jesus but pursuing division, you're not following Jesus because he's not divided, He's the head, we're his body. Jesus is not split. Jesus doesn't have two different churches. Jesus has one church, his people, in him. That's the true church. So if that's the nature of who Jesus is, isn't that how we should pursue living together in spiritual family? Christ is not divided. What I think is interesting here is that Paul notes that the practical reality and lived reality of the church should follow the deep theological understanding of who Jesus is. This is why theology matters. Theology matters because it's what sets the tone for how we actually live. And so Paul says, Jesus isn't divided, neither should his church be. And if you find yourself saying, man, I'm with this guy and that means I can't be friends with you, I'm on this team and you're not, so therefore we can't be in the same family. Careful. Because Jesus only has one church. So we should pursue unity together. The second thing Paul reminds us is the way we turn to Christ is not only recognizing Jesus sets the tone, but we have to reject celebrity culture. I love what he says here, right? It's Christ. Then he goes, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he goes on this great little diatribe, like, I, okay, I think I baptized this guy. I know I baptized this guy. Oh, yeah, there was that one family, but I'm glad I didn't baptize any of the rest of you. Right? Ba baptism was a big deal in that day. T to be baptized in someone's name was essentially to say, I identify with that person. I give my allegiance to them. I'm following them with my whole life. That's what it still means today. In a few weeks, we'll do baptisms on our outdoor service. And those that get baptized, it's a declaration to the community to say, I'm on Jesus. I trust in his death or resurrection, and I give my life to follow him. It's a statement of allegiance to Jesus, a public declaration of what we declare inside when we trust in him. But Paul essentially says, when that happens, you didn't do that to me. You didn't give your allegiance to follow him. Do you know how easy it would have been for Paul to write a letter to Corinth and say, hey, you want to solve your problem? Stop listening to those guys. Apollos, pff, Peter, I mean, I already rebuked Peter to his face. I got it, guys. I'm the man, here's my letter, just follow my instructions, you'll find your unity. You'll solve your problems. It, he could have written that, but he doesn't. What does he say? Hey, it's not about me. Don't, don't, don't side with me. You're not on team Paul, you're on team Jesus. And because you're on team Jesus, that means there is no team Paul. So stop taking your cues and thinking I'm this, that, and the other. Paul knows that if we're actually to find unity in Jesus, that means we actually have to reject our proneness to highlight personalities over Jesus. You should be leery of any spiritual leader that makes the community about them. You should. You should be very cautious and very apparent that people can use personality and celebrity even within the church of Jesus Christ to elevate their own status, worth, and identity above Jesus. It may sound good, but underneath it's all about them. And you should be careful of that. It's why you should never elevate a leader above Jesus in your own spiritual following of him. 
And even here, right? Like, I don't want this church to be about me. We're about one team and one team only. That's team Jesus. And if it ever becomes about me, I hope they fire me as fast as they possibly can. Because if I would do anything to distract from the glory of Jesus, God, take me home. It's one name and one name only. That's what we're about. And that's what Paul's reminding. Pastor so-and-so didn't die for you. That political leader or spiritual leader or philosophical leader, you weren't baptized into their name. It's about Jesus. And I think one of the things that Paul would remind us that we need reminded of, that I've just seen because I've walked this road before, is if you find yourself in a place where you have one primary voice through which you you live or see your spirituality or your life, you're probably prone towards personality idolatry. When we find ourselves where I, I listen to that person, I digest that person, I engulf their everything from them, careful. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why we encourage a plethora of voices around here. I want Pastor Joel to preach. I want Pastor Joe to preach. I want to raise up other elders to preach. I do not want to be your primary spiritual voice because that's not healthy for you. It will cause you to start to tear and to elevate people above the work of Christ. And so so Paul's real clear. That's why he wants to say, I didn't do this baptism thing. Stop making it about me. And And I jump on that a little bit because I think that's what we're prone to. And I've just seen it tear at communities when we take that same step. So Paul says, don't do that. Instead, make the gospel central. I mean, that's what he says, right? Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize. That's not what it's about, but to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus's lordship, death, and resurrection. See, Paul says, if you're going to find unity, what you actually have to pursue then is the central reality of the Christian faith, which is Jesus, that he's Lord, that he's died for our sins, that he rose again. That's what it's about. That's what's central. Not a personality, not a person. Jesus, who he is and his work. And Paul goes on to to remind them, not with words, right? I came to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so even in a statement, he's he's reminding them, you're going to have to make the cross central. You're going to have to make Jesus central. But that's going to run counter to the culture that's around you. Remember, the Corinthians had bought into a mentality of prizing rhetoric and philosophy. And Paul says, that's not how the gospel comes. The gospel isn't just for the elite. It isn't just for those who are very persuasive in their speech. It isn't for just for those who have high philosophical ideas. In fact, the gospel comes counter to those things. One commentator notes on this. I love this phrase. He says, in modern terms... Paul's phrase here would have been like saying that the gospel can only be heard in a university town from a highly sophisticated professor. In every way, Paul is saying the calling to evangelize involves turning the world's values upside down. Paul says, if if you're going to find unity amidst an us versus them culture, what you have to do is you have to stop following the patterns of the world and you have to start tuning into the centrality of the faith, which is the good news of Jesus. You gotta start making that what you're committed to and at the center of how you live your life. Because if you do that, 
then you'll begin to find unity. You'll begin to turn from personality and from divisions, and you'll join together for the sake of God's mission. Let me, let me give you a picture of this. I, th- I think that might be helpful. So I, I'm going to invite um, our two guitarists, Nathan and Kevin, to join me back on stage for a minute. So guys, you can come back up. So um, what, what I know about uh, Nathan and Kevin's guitars right now is that they just played them for our opening set, and they've been sitting in a humid, different room for a while. And so because of use and because of environment, their guitars are slightly out of tune with one another. Well, there you go. Thanks, Kevin. So, so as they step in, right, so, so there's some disunity between the two of them right now. Now, in response to that, they have two options for how they move back into being in tune. One, they can tune with one another, which means one of them plays a note and the other one tries to play a match and they adjust the tuning until they align. Now, the problem with that is They'll be in tune with one another, but they won't be actually in tune. And if there's anyone in this room who has perfect pitch, the first thing you would note is like, that's not the right key. You see, we're in a world of us versus them and division. What happens is we try to seek the unity and community we were designed for by trying to align our allegiance to someone else. I'll match myself to this person. I'll tune myself to this personality. And then anyone else that would cause division, you're out of here. And we think we're in tune. But we're really not. I mean, I've been in churches that are like, oh man, we love our church. We're unified. We're together. Like, you're all the same race. And you don't really like the other one that much. That's not unity. That's just tuned into a nice personality. We're all on the same side politically. Now they have a second option, right? The second option is that they can tune to the standard. So they have a pedal or they have a device that comes in, that they play their note that shows them what the standard is, 440 hertz, and they tune their guitar to align to that standard for what it means to be in tune. Now, here's the fascinating thing about this. I'm borrowing this from Tozer, but when they do that, they're automatically in tune with one another. So when they come out, they could tune in two different rooms, two different places. But if they tune to the standard, they're brought into unity. And that's Paul's point. Hey, if you're going to follow personality, you might think you're unified, but you're not. But if you set your tuning as Jesus, as his gospel, as his mission, well, then you'll find unity. Then you'll be brought together. You see, how do you fight an us versus them mentality in a community, in a church marked by Jesus Christ? You shift your mentality from us versus them to Christ for them. That's the essence of the gospel. The good news that Paul preaches is that God is for you and therefore we're for other people. And when you pursue that, unity will begin to follow. Because isn't that the truth of the good news of Jesus? I mean, God creates human beings. He designs us in this incredible way. But we in our arrogance and our pride, we turn from God say, we know better. We'll follow our own ways. And we trespass and sin against him in all sorts of ways. And it leads to all sorts of brokenness and division and guilt and issues in our world. And God, in that moment, 
of our sin could say, us versus them, I'm out. I'm done with this. I want a better world than what these guys are going to make. But he doesn't do that. He does not respond to our sin by coming against us, but by being for us. And he enacts a plan where he would literally send his own son to come to this earth, to live the life we couldn't, and then to die on the cross for all of those sins. The essence of the cross speaks across humanity that God is for us, not against us. That it's not us versus him, but it's him for us. Therefore, because that's God's mentality, our mentality in response is to be a people for people. To go out and say the good news of Jesus Christ is you might be far from God, but there's hope. You can be reconciled. Your life might be broken. You might be experiencing us versus them. You might find a vision, but there's redemption available in Jesus. You can be saved. And we become a for them sort of people. And when you become a for them sort of people, you become a together sort of people. I mean, that's why we're all about communities on mission here. You want to experience dynamic community in a life group? Get that group on mission. You'll pull together. You want to be a church that's together collectively? Man, let's keep following Jesus' ministry. Because when you're a for them people, you stop being an us versus them people. And that's Paul's point. I came for the gospel, and that's what we're supposed to be about. And so my encouragement to us, and we'll continue to be through all this because I think it's Paul's encouragement, is if we want to protect ourselves against division, against tearing, against pulling apart, let's tune ourselves to Christ. Let's have his mindset. Let's pursue his kingdom values. Let's put him above everyone else. There is only one celebrity in the church of Jesus Christ, and it's our Lord Jesus. No one else comes close. So let's not try to put them up there. And as we do that, brothers and sisters, man, we'll enjoy sweet fellowship together. We'll be a spiritual family that God works through for the sake of his mission in the world. And trust me, there's nothing better than a community like that. So let's tune to Christ. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.